Everyone felt as though the precipice had been avoided and mm -hmm. yeah, the, the multilateral response to climate change was back on track. Yeah. Mm. There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act, but I say, the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic, the podcast by and for Australia's climate community, coming to you today with the first of our special coverage of COP25. Today's interview was recorded not in Madrid, but in Melbourne, and is a chat between collective member Cree McNamara and one of her professors, Sam Johnston. Cree is on her way to Madrid, though, as we speak, and while we've got another interview coming to you that she recorded from Melbourne, look out this week for whatever Cree is able to fit into her, no doubt, crazy schedule in Madrid. Can't wait to bring that to you. So today we'll answer a lot of the questions you have around what the COP25 is, what it's about, the UNFCCC, the history of Australia's involvement with these agreements leading up to today. And we also get into that very pressing and urgent topic in Australia of bushfires and bushfire management, and how to protect ourselves from bushfire while also drawing down carbon. This is a great chat. Sam is a font of knowledge, and Cree had some fantastic questions for him. So she says it better than I ever could, so let's get into it. With Cree McNamara, one of Australia's youth delegates to COP25. Hey guys, it's Cree here again. I'd like to acknowledge that today's episode is being recorded on the lands of the Yalakut Willem clan of the Boonarong people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. COP25 is just around the corner and in fact by the time you're listening it may have already started. I'm taking you with me on my journey to COP25, meeting some inspirational folk along the way and diving into the complexities of a trans-border crisis that is climate change. You may be aware that this year's COP is being referred to as the Blue COP. With many consequences of climate change and human activities pushing oceanic systems further towards irreversible tipping points, there has never been a more crucial time to band together to protect and preserve our blue ecosystems. I'm incredibly passionate about marine conservation, and this has driven my studies to have a focus on oceans governance. One of the courses I'm taking at the moment has me learning all about the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, and how this fits in with the United Nations Framework Convention for Climate Change. Today I'm here with Sam Johnston, a Senior Research Fellow at the University of Melbourne, as well as the United Nations University Institute of Advanced Study of Sustainability. This semester he has been my professor for the United Nations Conventions on the Law of the Sea. He has held a myriad of positions and consultancies as a solicitor, including for the Secretariat of the Convention on Biological Diversity and the Green Climate Fund, to name only a few. With many experiences and a wealth of knowledge in the international climate regime, I'm incredibly grateful for Sam for taking some time to chat with me today. So Sam, thanks for being here. For inviting me. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so what drew you to the space of multilateralism and law? And how did your career in the space of law start off? Uh, it started off by me 
doing a law degree at the University of Sydney. Uh, can't say that I was super passionate about the law, but it was a very long course and I was super passionate about avoiding the workforce. <laughs> <laughs> and I did science law at Sydney. Yeah. And then um, I went and joined a big corporate firm. And after a couple of years of that, I got um, accepted into the master's program at University College London. Mm-hmm. And there, the advice at the beginning of the master's program was don't specialise go to a whole variety of courses that you think are interesting mm-hmm. and enrol in the ones that the teachers really engage in. The one that I found the most exciting was international environmental law. Mm-hmm. So I had I was taught by Philippe Sands and James Cameron and they were very dynamic teachers and also actively involved in negotiating the UNFCCC. Mm-hmm. So I was passionate about international environmental law. I was inspired by them mm-hmm. and... Uh, and then I got a job at Cambridge um, as a research fellow in international environmental law. And then I got a job at the UN in the Convention on Biodiversity. And one thing led on to another. So mm-hmm. that's uh, how it started. I guess I've always been interested in the environment. Uh, you know, I grew up when the Franklin Dam case was happening. Right. And so that inspired me and really engaged me. So I was always interested, but just didn't see how it was possible in Australia. So. Mm-hmm. When I went to London, I bumped into the reality of it and mm. grabbed it with both hands and yeah. I've never regretted it. Yeah, very mm. cool. And so what kind of um, work were you doing um, amongst the Convention for Biodiversity? So I was uh, did a wide range of jobs because uh, when I joined the Convention, there was only one other person, that was the boss. And so mm-hmm. it was very small and we had to do everything. So I did the legal work and the science work and the political work and the mm. economic work uh, and uh, was a really, really intense and crazy time, but amazingly enjoyable mm. and exciting. So mm. I got to do everything. One of the areas that uh, really intrigued me was, in fact, looking at these nature-based solutions. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of work on forests and land use and because that's very important for biodiversity. And mm. so, and then I also had another area which I came across, which I, I slowly came to realize its importance was working with indigenous people and the role they play and the contribution they can make mm. to biodiversity conservation, but also to other issues like climate change. And mm. so I made um, some remarkable friends in that work with indigenous people and uh, they've proven to be lifelong friends and colleagues which I've worked with ever since. Mm, yeah, mm. great. Cool. I think we'll get back to that point later. But firstly, so the United Nations Framework Convention for Climate Change, can you tell us about what what it is exactly and how it fits into the UN framework and, and how it kind of works into the COP? So it's a bit like a contract but between states yeah. and so that's the best way of thinking. It's an agreement that states make to try and address particular issues and Mm. convention is a very common vehicle for addressing a whole range of issues so human rights Mm. or biodiversity conservation or law of the sea Mm. or climate change Mm. and so the the UNFCCC is the main convention which deals with climate change it's not the only one Mm. climate change was identified as needing a legal response and a legal framework in the sort of mid to late 80s and then states agreed in the lead up to a very important conference the Rio conference or the United Nations Convention on Environment and Development in 1992 to adopt 
a, a legal agreement to begin to address climate change, biodiversity and deserts. Mm-hmm. And so in the pre- lead up to that conference in June 1982, the states uh, met and agreed the basic outline and framework of a legal response for those three issues and adopted the UNFCCC or the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which basically provides a mechanism for countries to begin to think about the issue. It doesn't actually have commitments in it mm-hmm. to reduce greenhouse gases which cause climate change, but it's a, a process which states agree to undertake, share information, produce reports, mm-hmm. undertake inventories, begin to assess the issue mm-hmm. in order to set up the basis for taking action. Mm-hmm. And and so that was adopted in, in 1992, came into force in 93, and began that process. Mm-hmm. As soon as it began, though, they realised that it was important to tackle greenhouse gas emissions and so they adopted a process to negotiate commitments about reducing greenhouse gases mm-hmm. and that resulted that, that those negotiations started in 93 as soon as the convention came into force and started operating and they resulted in 1997 in Kyoto the adoption of the Kyoto Protocol which has commitments to reduce greenhouse gases by developed countries. Yeah. Those commitments began um, in 2008 and where developed countries agreed to reduce their overall emissions by 5.2% over 1990 levels. And the first emissions period by which that was going to be measured was from 2008 to 2012. And then the second emissions period was from 2013 to 2020. And then subsequent to that, it became obvious. Well, what happened is after 1997 is essentially the rise of China and Brazil and, and mm. India in terms of economic power and also greenhouse gas emissions. And so it became increasingly obvious um, over sort of from t- mid-2000s onwards that, in fact, without the commitment of developing countries as well, commitments by the developed countries to reduce their greenhouse gases were becoming less and less important and relevant. So we often hear about Copenhagen as as being a bit of a failure. Why was that? Complex question, (laughs) which has many answers depending on who you are. But at simplest, I think it was the Copenhagen drafts reflected that dichotomy between developed and developing countries and committed developed countries to more greenhouse gas reductions. Mm. And that dichotomy, which was valid in 1992 and 1997, was increasingly less valid in 2009. Mm -hmm. And so it became increasingly difficult for developed countries to justify to their people why they were committing to greenhouse gas reductions and not the same was being required of countries like China. And on the other hand, China and other developing countries are saying, no, you've got to lead the way mm-hmm. and you've still got to lead the way. You cause the problem, mm-hmm. you lead the way and we'll follow. And those two basic ideas were irreconcilable, but they were still the basis of the agreement in Copenhagen. And so that's basically why it, it fell apart. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are other twists and turns and angles and reasons and 
you know, a big part was um, actually just the negotiation process. So the, the Danish were chairing it and they didn't handle the negotiation process that well, mm-hmm. uh, especially with the benefit of hindsight and produced a text at the last minute, mm-hmm. uh, which failed. But even if they had been handled well and they'd agreed on something, probably the agreement would have fallen apart because it would have been based on that dichotomy, yeah. which was increasingly politically unsustainable in the developed world. Mm-hmm. And so there was more and more thinking about how to develop a basis by which developing countries would commit to reducing greenhouse gases. And also the realisation that Kyoto's second commitment period is going to end in 2020, that, that there needed to be a new instrument which would commit all countries, developed and developing, to reducing their greenhouse gas emissions. That had a spectacular failure beginning in Copenhagen in 2009, but then was revived and resulted in the Paris Agreement, which was adopted by the COP in 2015, which mm-hmm. under which all countries have agreed to a process by which they'll begin to reduce their greenhouse gases. Mm-hmm. The Paris Agreement came about and everybody was on board with it. That was like considered very triumphant. It was a really exciting moment that kind of paved the way for the next... Yes, yeah. Everyone felt as though that, yeah, the, um, the precipice had been avoided and, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the multilateral response to climate change was back on track. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. And so it was very exciting and everyone was um, very grateful. Again, it was a result then of inspired and very comprehensive leadership by the French. It mm-hmm. wasn't simply just a matter of the crafting of the agreement being right. It was sold very, very... At the highest level by the French, they put a lot of effort into selling it and yeah. making sure everyone was on board. Mm. And, and I think, you know, it's quite a minimalist agreement. It doesn't mm. really commit much. Yeah. It doesn't require any particular commitment of any particular country other than they just agree to make us to submit mm. some commitment. But what it has done is created a process which successfully engaged the developed countries and developing countries since. Yeah. And... If you look at other processes, parallel processes, like the process to address ozone-depleting substances, you can see that if you create the right mechanism, then commitments uh, usually come much quicker than people expect and the problem begins to be addressed. And you could argue that the UNFCCC originally in 1992 and its Kyoto Protocol didn't actually create that right environment and we ended up going down the wrong track. And mm. so we had to start again. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. We hear the Australian government saying that we are exceeding our Paris targets. And I just want to ask, is this the full story? And can you maybe explain a little bit about carryover credits and how the government plans to use these um, to continue with the kinds of emissions that we're producing at the moment? So the government is saying we're on track to meet our commitment, which is uh, 26 to 28% reduction by 2025. So... Mm. But in the process, they're saying that under the Kyoto Protocol and its first two periods, the Australian government had commitments as well. In fact, the first period was to actually increase 108% over its 1990 levels, and which they met and, and exceeded. And so what they're proposing to do is the extent to which they exceeded their Kyoto Protocol commitments, those credits which were over and above their commitment would be used to help them meet their commitment under this first Paris round Mm -hmm. and most countries exceeded their Kyoto Protocol commitments but have retired them and 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 Europeans have agreed not to use them for Mm -hmm. their first Paris round Mm -hmm. and so there's been some criticism of Australia pretending or using them Um, and 
Whether they're going to meet it or not, I'm in no position to judge. Mm -hmm. I mean, the government says it will, the scientists say it's unlikely. I haven't looked into it particularly carefully, so I'm not well informed. Mm -hmm. But it it is worth noting that they're rather modest. Mm -hmm. So most countries picked 1990 as the baseline because that was the baseline in Kyoto. But Australia picked 2005 because that was their peak emissions year. And so a 25 26 to 28 percent decrease from 2005 levels is not the same as a 26 percent decrease from 1990 levels at all yeah and so it's a much more modest kind of figure so it's all a bit of a smokes and mirrors but on the other hand a lot of other countries are using the figures like that too so many people are playing are trying to seek advantage by having the biggest emissions they possibly can with at the same time seem to be doing something and and being transparent about it. So there's a lot of that sort of um, smokes and mirrors going on with all of the commitments. And it's hard to know. I think it, I think it's really difficult to predict from here whether Australia will meet its commitment or not because so much can happen. So much is beyond the control of policymakers. So the criticism you often read about is that there's nothing in the policy settings at the moment which will uh, drive greenhouse gas reductions. Mm. And, and that's probably true, but... You, you can't predict the impact of drought or of technology and how quickly we're moving into renewables and, mm. and whether that, that may escalate even more than it already has happened. Yeah. So that may actually drive us way below the, the, the limit without anybody being able to predict it because it depends upon you and I taking up the technology. So yeah. um, you know, maybe that electric cars just suddenly take over. So that's what's happening with renewables is that they've become much more cost effective and so the take up is the largest in the world here mm. because it's just cheaper mm. and people are moving into cheaper energy. And so that impact even five years ago would be hard to have, not many people would have predicted that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's always important to bear in mind when you're working or studying in the environmental space like it can feel frustrating or daunting at times but then when you think about how much change has really happened in the last decade there is a lot of hope for for the coming decade one of the themes for the upcoming cops is going to be nature-based solutions so can you elaborate a little bit more about what what that refers to it refers to the idea that um, one of the technologies we have to hand to address climate change and reduce greenhouse gas emissions and adapt to the impacts of climate change is actually nature itself. Mm. Um, it's not all about transport or cement or energy production. Uh, actually, a really important one is the way nature recycles carbon itself. And mm. so long been attention on the role that land plays and um, also the oceans play in fact oceans play a, are a bigger carbon sink and a bigger part of the carbon cycle than, than land is by by an order of magnitude using nature's solutions in the carbon cycle and promoting the sucking up of carbon and also using the resilience of nature to adapt to the impacts of climate change has, has long played a very important role uh, and some prominent ideas about that have been in terms of reducing deforestation or encouraging afforestation, mm-hmm. reforestation, mm-hmm. addressing land degradation and desertification, mm-hmm. um, looking at the role that oceans play in terms of uh, seagrass and mangrove restoration, um, and also maybe 
geoengineering the ocean so it sucks up more carbon. Mm -hmm. Also looking at the role that uh, agriculture generally plays. So agriculture is a huge source of emissions in most countries and I think it's 20% in Australia or 24%. Seeing ways that we can minimise that. And also another really important source of emissions is wildfire. On that note, um, earlier I mentioned just a few of the hats that you wear. And another one of these is with the International Savannah Fire Management Initiative. Wildfires are hugely topical here in Australia at the moment, as we've had hundreds of thousands of hectares of the country burn in the last few weeks. So can you tell us a little bit about the Savannah Burning Initiative that you're a part of and how this feeds into mitigating the effects of climate change? Wildfire is a global phenomenon and happens all over the world. And in fact, it emits every year eight gigatons of greenhouse gases and most of that is reabsorbed by regrowth in the spring or in the early dry season if you're in the tropics mm. so the fire burns that regrowth and then emits carbon and then it's sucked back in the carbons used to build the grasses in a balanced system the fire would be so that eight gigatons would totally be reabsorbed yeah. But at the moment, we have only six gigatons being reabsorbed. So there's two gigatons globally, which is being emitted and added to the global atmospheric mm. greenhouse gas levels every year. Mm. And that's a, a reflection of the imbalance that we have in the fire system. Now, the most important reason for that is that in the tropical savannas, where most of the world's wildfire happens, 70% of that takes place in the tropical savannas, is that for millennia, they were managed by the Indigenous people using traditional fire practices, which basically meant early dry season burning to clear away the undergrowth and to make fire breaks, which would then inhibit very destructive late dry season fires, which are much hotter, much more intensive and killed everything. Whereas the early ones are a gentle, cool flame, basically clean out the grass and the undergrowth and leave the trees. But with European colonisation of these savannas in Africa and Latin America and Northern Australia, and Europeans' perception of wildfire being dangerous, and their approach being to suppress wildfire at all costs at any time, these traditional practices were disrupted. One of the most dramatic impacts, especially in a country like Australia, is increased wildfire. Longer dry seasons, longer fire seasons, hotter summers. And so we're we already seeing those impacts um, both here but in Brazil and in Africa as well. Terrible fire seasons over the last few years. Now the only answer to that is not to carry on in the European model of suppressing and buying more planes and helicopters and firefighters to fight it. It's actually to bring back that traditional practice. No one can afford to suppress it anymore it's getting the bills are into the billions of dollars mm. it still doesn't work as we've seen in new south wales and queensland recently so the only way to really tackle that is to bring back those traditional practices and do a lot more basically prescribed burning in these areas so and that has happened in northern australia so over the last 10 years 15 years the reintroduction of those traditional fire practices have taken place very successfully and one of the impacts of that is not only to reduce the amount of fire in the system over the year which we can measure using satellite technology and turn that measurement into tons of carbon mm -hmm. and that sell those tons of carbon which then generate an income for the rangers who are doing the fire practice and generate a job in country which is a very rare commodity mm -hmm. uh, but it's also then gone on to benefit the productivity of the landscape the biodiversity of the landscape and it has all these cultural impacts which 
reinvigorate the traditional practices and it means that the rangers can take their kids out on country and teach them about song lines and their culture and then that's also had flow-on effects about health because they're living in country they're away from townships and drugs and alcohol and all the problems of townships etc and so there are many many uh, co-benefits as they're called mm-hmm. coming from this and I recognised that what was happening in Northern Australia could be and should be replicated in Africa because that has the same fire story and in Latin America and in parts of Asia because they have an identical story to what happened in Northern Australia namely traditional management suppressed by the Europeans and now an out-of-balance fire regime. So I was able to convince the government to invest in a feasibility study which we undertook over three years and found lots of interest, lots of relevance and, and recommended that we pilot the idea and that, so the government then invested in a pilot site in Botswana which has been very successful and shown quite clearly that the results that we've seen in Northern Australia reduce greenhouse gases, biodiversity, productivity increased, biodiversity increased, social impacts like revival of traditional cultures etc. It's all possible in Africa mm-hmm. and replicable and so now we're in the process of scaling that up to a dozen other countries mm-hmm. around the world. So we do the same thing as what we've done in Botswana and, and demonstrate at a significant scale the possibilities for this response. Mm-hmm. It's a really, it sounds like a really, quite a beautiful project uh, that has benefits in all, a lot of different aspects um, that maybe haven't been foregrounded in the past and I think, yeah. It's a very exciting um, and it's a wonderful um, Australian success story and, uh, uh, and it's, as you said, it's actually the co-benefits which are even more important but it has this yeah, global benefit which is really significant in that it will be it'll potentially reduce um, hundreds of millions of tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions a year Mm. and in fact more importantly it's the really only response adaptation if you want to one of those dramatic impacts of climate change the increase of wildfire there there is no other response which is valid or sustainable Mm. I guess I wanted to ask do you ever face contentions with commodifying these natural processes so is it fair to say that assigning ecosystems a dollar value is the only way for us to get strong commitments towards preserving and protecting them in today's current landscape it's a good question and there is many views about that and certainly um, a lot of indigenous people for instance are opposed to the commodification of these ecosystem services if you want mm. so a lot of indigenous people say for instance in the amazon see those nature-based solutions like red as another colonialist imposition they're not allowed to do with the forest what they want to do because the governments are saying they have to keep them pristine in yeah. commerce to lock up the carbon and they see that as another form of colonialism whereas say for instance if you approach it in a different way like the Savannah Fire Management Initiative has in that it's indigenous led mm-hmm. and it's an indigenous technology the response even though it does involve commodification that is the carbon is commodified and generates an income the response from even those indigenous groups that are opposed to red mm-hmm. is quite different and so they see it completely differently and are very open to the idea and, and some even embrace the idea. So there's a lot of different answers and complexity to that commodification issue. We properly designed, 
these mechanisms can help. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there is a deep philosophical problem and the Europeans, for instance, have that. They don't like these offset ideas because they see that as really being an excuse for polluters to keep on polluting and really what we've got to do is tackle the source yeah. and this is just a way of putting off the pain. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's no one answer to any of these issues. It's mm -hmm. a very complex world and different things will work in different spaces. And yeah. So, commodification will work to some extent and make a contribution. If it's done properly, it will make a good contribution. If it's done badly, it will make a bad contribution. There's some very complex ideas here. Combining what we know about the law, which is traditionally quite rigid and transparent, with these philosophical questions about commodifying um, nature and the lengths to which humans must go in order to protect our natural ecosystems. So it's some really, really amazing work and very innovative that you're a part of. And I think um, hearing about all you know, you know, about the scientific side of things as well as the socio-cultural side of things and, and the political landscape of what's going on at the moment. You're certainly very well regarded in your field and uh, well appreciated. So that's about it from us now. Um, if you'd like to know more about the International Savannah Fire Management Initiative, I'll pop a link in today's show notes where you can find out some more. But Sam, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I know you're super busy and you're even heading off overseas tonight, so I really do appreciate it. Thank you very much for the opportunity and good luck. Thank it's a great, exciting thing. It's one of the most exciting things you can do going to a COP. Yeah. So many people and ideas. It's wonderful. I definitely feel better informed heading into Madrid next week, and I have no doubt that our listeners have learned something new as well. So thank you so much, and thank you all for tuning in. I dare say the next time you'll hear from me will be at the COP itself. So until then, over and out. Well, I can't speak for you, but I know I definitely learned a lot from that episode. I really appreciate that Cree took the time to sit down, have that conversation with Sam, but also to record it so we could be a fly on the wall and learn the whole history of the cops leading up to today. I didn't know a lot of that history. I didn't know exactly when... Kyoto was, when it was ratified, what it did, what this accounting trick that I've heard a lot about Australia thinking about trying to pull, uh, what it actually meant. That was just really informative. And to me, it really highlights the awesome power that podcasts have. That simply by having a little lava leader mic plugged into a phone, Cree was able to take us for half an hour into the mind of a very well-respected academic and give us a great primer ahead of COP25 in Madrid. So thank you very much for that, Cree. I'm sure you're looking forward to more from her and Madrid, just like I am, and I can't wait to bring that to you. If you want to follow along with what's going on in Madrid day by day, I'll add a link in the show notes to Cree's Instagram account, but also to one John Englart, who's a really well-known member of the Melbourne community, who's over there right now as well and posting a lot of good updates. I'd love to say we're going to be turning around episodes fast and furious over the next week or two, uh, but realistically... Cree is just there with a very full plate, and I'm back here in Melbourne kind of doing this editing as and when I can. We're not a big newsroom. We're not a big operation by any means. This is all voluntary. It's just a small group of passionate people who want to make a podcast for the climate community, the kind of show that we ourselves want to hear. And if you enjoy what we're making or you want to be part of it yourself, please just let us know. We're a wide tent 
and we're looking for more members so we ourselves can do more and produce more content. Just drop us an email to hello at climactic.fm and introduce yourself. Say hi on Facebook to either myself, Mark Spencer, or to the Climactic page. But if all you want to do is enjoy the program, that's absolutely fine. Thank you so much for listening. And the thing you can do of telling your friends and family about the show is a huge, huge help. But there is one more thing you can do if you enjoy the show and you want to help us keep going, and that's to support us financially. Now, that sounds really daunting. That sounds like I'm about to ask for something big, but really that can be even for a dollar a month. We have a possible account where you can give at a dollar, seven dollars, or fifteen dollars a month, and I understand that 15 bucks is more than a Netflix subscription. Seven is less, but it's still quite a bit of money. But even for a dollar a month, it would just help us feel like what we're doing is of value and that you're appreciating it. And in the interests of full disclosure, we love this show to get to the point where we have sponsors on board. Good companies who we're okay with being associated with. In fact, proud to be associated with. But because at the moment we're still quite small, it's hard to make it worth their time. But if we're able to show that there's a group of people who love this show enough to support it for even a dollar a month, that would go a long way towards showing our value. And if we were able to make this show self-sustaining financially, that would mean its future is secure, and we can keep investing in our people and reaching out to help other members of the climate community. So I haven't really asked this as bluntly in the past, because as the climate community, I'm so aware there is so many good causes that deserve and need our funds. But if you enjoy Climactic, please support us, even for just a dollar a month. It would mean so much to us. And with all that said, thank you for joining us today, and stay tuned for more from Cree from COP25 in Madrid. Stay safe out there. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening. And from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. Collective.